Because I'm an, I'm an alcoholic. I embraced the philosophy of Alcoholics Anonymous 40 years and 8 months ago. And I've been sober ever since, in spite of guys like him. <laughs> now, Alcoholics Anonymous gave me a 100% guarantee that I would never drink again if I lived according to certain conditions as honest as I possibly could. In fact, Alcoholics Anonymous gives us all a 100% guarantee that we will never drink again as long as we live. If we live according to certain conditions, which are the simple 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, as honest as we possibly can. And some of us say, I haven't the ability to be honest anymore. But it says in the book, the willingness to try to be honest alone will do the job. And this miracle happens to you and me. We just kind of bounce over these 12 steps, this way of life that's laid out for us. And lo and behold, they say, easy does it. And we carry that to extreme, that easy does it. But we stay sober a week. We stay sober a month. We stay sober a year. We stay sober five years. And everybody says to us, it's a miracle. It is a miracle. It's a miracle that we're all sober. And there's only one thing that can cause a miracle. And that's some power outside of ourselves. Call it whatever you may. I call it God. You can call it anything you wish. We all have our personal God. We all have our personal power greater than ourselves. You see, Bill wrote, <clears throat> after the steps, three pertinent ideas which really takes up the whole program. A, I am an alcoholic and cannot manage my own life. And B, that probably no human power could help us and see that God could and would if sought. And lo and behold, I was around AA for a long time before I came to the realization that if I tried to live according to these simple 12 steps, that I was actually seeking the help of this power greater than myself. Not a human power, a power outside of myself. And I don't mean the guy over there in the clouds. I don't mean falling on my knees and screaming. I mean simple living according to these simple 12 steps. So I've been trying to live according to the way this power greater than myself wishes me to live, regardless of the fact I didn't realize it. And I don't think any of us realize it. You see, all these steps are what we call spiritual living. The very foundation of our sobriety are these 12 simple steps. And they are all good, and they are all positive. Therefore, they are all spiritual. So actually, in spite of ourselves, in spite of what we believe, we are actually trying to live a spiritual life if we try to live the simple 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. So what do we have here? Alcoholics Anonymous is a spiritual fellowship. It's the greatest spiritual movement <clears throat> in the last century. And that's what we belong to. That's the thing that saves our lives. This is it. This is what we have. Alcoholics Anonymous. All we have to do is try to the best of our ability to try to live these 12 simple steps as honest as we possibly can. Now, I think that maybe I should sit down, because that's the whole program. I, I, came into <clears throat> I came into Alcoholics Anonymous April 17th, 1941. There were 34 people in this group, and it was the only group of Alcoholics Anonymous west of the Rockies. There were just 400 members nationwide in AA. It could have been another cult. It could have been a lot of things, you know, because there are sure a lot of ding-dongs in it, I believe me. <laughs> they were tough. They were real tough. 
We had a book, and that's all. We didn't have all these damn pamphlets, you know. Uh, New York needs an extra million. They print another pamphlet. That's all. So, uh, I'm not taking a swipe at them. That's good business. <laughs> but all we had was the book, and we were guided by the book entirely. Whenever there were any problems or questions came up, we went to the book. You had to, when you came to the door there, there was a guy standing at the door, and he said, do you want to stay sober on an all-time basis? And if you hesitate a little bit, he said, get the hell out of here and make up your mind. They screened you right at the door, believe me. So our percentage of sobriety was very good. There are a couple of our members that used to go out and get drunk once in a while. They were all men in this group except uh, Sybil. Uh, Sybil. Her name was Willison. And uh, she's got to know, she's just been married six times, but that's all right. Her last name I don't remember. The last husband, you know. <laughs> she got in there two weeks ahead of me. But these two guys used to go out and get drunk, and they'd go to a bar, and they'd say, we're members of Alcoholics Anonymous, and they'd get drunker than hell. And they were ruining our reputation. So we had a meeting of the committee, the steering committee, which was the whole group. And we passed a law. Now, we have no laws in AA if you don't know it, but we passed one that anybody that got drunk twice couldn't come to AA anymore. <laughs> We'd eliminate those guys. So at the next meeting, old Pete got up, old Pete Cunningham. Now, of that 34 members, there are just four of us still alive, so you can imagine some of them were pretty damned old then. And old Pete got up and says, I've been studying the book and studying the book, and I think we passed a bad law. He says, it says in the book, anybody with an alcoholic problem is welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. So we had to let those bastards in. <laughs> now, we didn't have an office in those days. We had no means of uh, communication. So we had a post office box and a little ad running in the paper. And they, we would get a lot of letters at this post office box. And on Fridays, why, we'd bring the letters up and leave them on the stand, east, ne uh, west, north, south, you know, divide them up. And we go out and make these calls. Now, whoever wrote the letters was never the alcoholic. And we got kicked out of the nicest homes. <laughs> we were a book-selling racket. We were a bunch of so-and-sos, and we had very little success, you know. <laughs> and we didn't have that precedent at those times, which we should have at all times now, the precedent that a, a male never makes a 12-step call on a female and vice versa unless accompanied by one of the opposite sex. Did you ever call on a drunken woman? I have with her head in the can and the puking and the, and the hair down over Christ. It's an awful sight. <laughs> so at this time, we had a, uh, a member, a big, good-looking guy. Uh, he had a wristwatch yet. I don't think he belonged in AA. I had new threads on all the time, nice Cadillac eyes. What the hell is he doing in AA? You know, but he was there, nice guy. He lived out in Beverly Hills, and so he took this bunch of letters one day, and he had an inquiry from somebody in Beverly Hills, and he went over to this beautiful home and in the afternoon and rang the doorbell, and a gorgeous gal came to the door with nothing on but a thin nightgown <laughs> and a highball in her hand, and she's had the shakes pretty bad, the jiggles. And he said, uh, I'm from Alcoholics Anonymous, and she says, oh, yes. She says, oh, yes, I wrote them a letter. She says, I want to know about that, as you can see. She says, I'm pretty drunk last night. I'm trying to get over the shakes. And he says, that's all right. So she says, follow me back here to the bedroom. So he went back to the bedroom with her. And she reclined on the bed, sipping her drink. And over here on the table is all kinds of fine booze. So uh, he pulled a chair up to give her the AA pitch. And of course, being a good, solid uh, member of AA and an alcoholic, he naturally got drunk with her. <laughs> And then being a fine young man and good health, he got in bed with her. <laughs> then an old man came home. And you know, he sued AA. But he couldn't find us. AA grew very fast along about this time, so we had to find another place to move to, and so we found a place over at 2200 West 7th Street. And this was a great big building. It was a Jewish center. It had a big, beautiful hall downstairs, a great big kitchen in the back. And I remember the guy that owned this. His name was Farber, and we, owed a, we all owe a great deal of 
of uh, thanks to this guy's barber because, you know, we were all pretty broke in those days. <laughs> Don't mention it. And we, we had a lot of rooms upstairs, and he wouldn't charge us for those extra rooms or anything. So on Friday nights, we had this. This was the only meeting in town. The thing grew so fast. We ran up to 600 people. They came in from Santa Barbara, Bakersfield, San Berdu, all down through Orange County. They came from all directions to this one big meeting, about 600 people. At this time, the women started coming in. They found out that AA was legitimate. These women fell out of the trees, and they come out from under rocks. You never saw so many women in your life from all directions. It was beautiful, you know. So we start the meeting at 8.30. That was open meeting for everybody. And then at 8.30, by, at 9.30, why that would break up. And all the non-alcoholics went upstairs, and they had a meeting of their own called Non-Alcoholic Family Group, which my wife was very much involved in. I think I was married then to her. Anyway, that was a family group, you know. And they had a non-alcoholic meeting. And it was fantastic. And Bill Wilson was in town one day, and he wanted to see one of these meetings. And he saw it, and he sent Lois out to the coast. And she started this thing, and now they call it Al-Anon. Al-Anon started at 2200 West 7th in Los Angeles, California. It's quite a, quite a thing. Well, anyway, we'd have our regular meeting at 930, and it was a knockdown and drag out. You know, all alcoholics, we usually have a speaker, and then we'd make the speaker stay up there and prove what he said, you see. <laughs> and the questions and answers, it was great. We didn't have any closing time like you guys here do. Uh, it might start at 9.30 to 11 or 11.30 or 12 even. It was wonderful. We'd close up when everybody ran out of breath. And the fights they used to have. Oh, they'd throw chairs at one another. It was wonderful, you know. <laughs> it's just like, you know, the format for the meeting. We have the reading of the steps. and the... We didn't even have a format. You see, we didn't have anybody from New York to guide us. Thank God. <laughs> so what we do, we would... <laughs> Mortimer J., who was the founder of the first group that was successful on the, in the West, said it would be a good idea if we'd start uh, the, the meeting with the reading of a portion of Chapter 5 and the, and the 12 steps, which we did. This is our thing. And then some guy in the group who evidently was a, uh, was a religious fanatic decided we ought to uh, recite the Lord's Prayer. And my God, it hit the fan. He says, what is this, another religion? And they started fighting and threw chairs at each other and everything. I says, this is wonderful. I'm coming back to this meeting. So they took a vote and they won. So we recite the Lord's Prayer at the end of the meeting. All this God stuff, you know, you hear. <laughs> oh, boy. So then after the meeting, why, we would have our social hour. So we had great big long tables and, uh, and we had uh, donuts and coffee and we would sit there never less than 2 o'clock in the morning. So you get home at 3 o'clock. Every Friday night was New Year's Eve. It was just wonderful. It was just wonderful. You might hear a good talk and you might see a good fight. You know, you just can't miss that thing. And then the war came along, 1942, and uh, no gasoline. <laughs> you couldn't get it for a dollar and a half even, or two dollars. You just couldn't get it. You got a stamp, if you remember. You All you old goats out there remember that. And uh, the lights had to be off and all that. So we had to start other groups. They had to get groups in their own neighborhoods. And this is when it started. So we encouraged everybody to start groups in their own areas. And down there, we got 1,300 groups in Los Angeles County. 1,300 groups. Can you imagine that? All you have to do is fall out of your back door, and you can walk right into a group within a block. <laughs> and most of them started because they got mad at the other group, you see. So they said, hell with you. I'll start my own group. I started a group. <laughs> I started a group in 1946. We call it the Arlington Group. It was on Arlington Boulevard, and we're still going. I said, to hell with you. I'll start my own group, which I did. And we're doing good. Well, now, <clears throat> AA grew, and AA is growing. A lot of people are getting sober, and a lot of people aren't getting sober. And in those days, you know, you make a 12-step call, it's so much different than now. All you have to do is run them over to one of these sober-up joints and, and walk away. In those days, you, wouldn't, you weren't accepted in a hospital. No doctor would even talk to you back in the 30s when I was drinking the worst. It was pretty awful. You shook yourself out of it. And I'm glad I didn't go to a sober-up joint because I suffered and I appreciated sobriety when I got in here. And I remember this is a typical 12-step call. My wife and I moved from the little apartment we lived in. We built a home of our own. After I'd been in AA a few years, I was pretty successful. And when we moved over this home of our own in the kitchen, I found way back there about six bottles of booze, some of them half full, some of them quarter full. And I says, oh, oh. This is what I used to do when I make 12-step calls. I'd get a 12-step call, 
And I'd say to my wife, well, right after dinner, we'll make a call on this guy. He's over so-and-so, so-and-so address. Just he and his wife. We'll both of us go. So we'd pack up, and we'd, I'd stop at a liquor store and grab a half a pint or a pint, usually a pint, and go over to the guy's house. My wife would take the wife into the living room and sit down and tell her all about Alcoholics Anonymous, that this was a very legitimate thing. And I'd sit down with a drunk, and I'd taper him off. It's a very simple thing. You take a shot, and you put in a big glass of water. And then maybe in a half hour, you give him a little less than a big glass of water. And by 2 or 3 in the morning, well, you got the guy cooled down in pretty, shape, pretty good shape, and then we'd go home. And then at 9 o'clock in the morning, I'd be right over there again to take care of this guy, and pretty soon get him eating, and you got him back on a job in 3 or 4 days. This is what we called 12-step work when I was new in AA. It's so simplified now that there's no effort on a part of the alcoholic. They can throw him into a hospital or anything. You see, we didn't have hospitals then that will take us. Even the general hospital, after I got into AA in the early years, I ate two different times. Guys were having alcoholic convulsions, and I drove behind the hospital in the back way and dumped the guy off at the door, and they had to take him in and save the life of two guys by, that, by doing that. You see, AMA, the American Medical Association, used to say, they couldn't be bothered with alcoholism. It wasn't a disease. Now, with all the dough flowing around, it costs you 4000 bucks for three, three weeks in one of these joints. Now they say it's a treatable disease, you see. <laughs> Jesus, I'm sure rapping things tonight, ain't I? I don't mean to, but this is the truth. I mean, you, we're pretty honest about things, but that's the way it was. And this is the way we used to make 12-step calls in those days. And it was quite something. And I would take a guy to maybe six meetings, and I'd hand him the, <clears throat> hand him the deal and say, Here, you, here's, all the, the, here's all, the all the groups and all the meetings. Now you go on your own. I have carried the body far enough. I'm carrying the message. So you go. And when you want me, call me. And they all got sober, with very few exceptions. A few of them killed themselves, of course, but otherwise it was all right. One guy hung himself. He said he couldn't make it. Well, I says, That's just as good, you know. Ha, ha, ha. Might as well be dead as the way he was. It was a terrible feeling to walk into that room. I've been 12-stepping this guy for quite a while, and I walked into that room, and the door was a little bit open, and I bumped, ahead and I bumped against something, and here the guy had hung himself in the chandelier in the living room. That was a 12-step call. It's pretty, pretty rough. You know? And then there's, there's a certain amount of us get the idea that we have our diploma. We got our diploma. Like we were coming to AA, and we take a course, and then we're all through, you see. We don't get diplomas in AA. This is a way of life that we're supposed to follow from now on, and if we don't, we're going to fall flat on our face again. No diplomas. No diplomas. So one, two friends of mine within a year, one of them lived in Arcadia, old Bill. Old Bill was a sweet guy, and he had been sober a little over 15 years, and he decided he had all the answers. He didn't want to go and hear those 12 steps and those guys and gals yak anymore, so he didn't go anymore. And I says, Bill, you're playing with fire. I says, listen, I got all the answers. Quack, 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 quack. So his wife called me one morning and says, Bill won't, Bill broke his hip, and he was in a hell of a shape. And uh, so one night, he had married this gal after he got sober. She was a charming old woman. And he said, uh, a bottle of bourbon, you know, a little bourbon to put me to sleep and kill this pain. So she went and bought him a fifth of bourbon. And pretty soon, he's drinking two-fifths of bourbon a day to kill the pain, see? And one morning, she called me, and I was having breakfast. And she says, Bill won't, Bill won't uh, eat his breakfast. He says he won't eat his breakfast unless I give him a drink first. <laughs> and I says, what am I supposed to do about it? And she says, can't you do something about it? She says, I'm not going to give him a bit of booze until he drinks this drink, or until he eats his breakfast. So about 45 minutes later, she called me back, and she says, Bill's dead. And I says, why? Because I wouldn't give him a drink. He shot himself through the heart. Now, how do you like that? And he left a note. He had planned this thing. In the, in, in the note, he said, because you won't give me any booze, I'm going to kill myself. And he did. Now, the other guy was over on the other end of town, and he was drunk by about a year. But he had 16, 17 years, a dear friend of mine. And anyway, to make a long story short, he stayed drunk for about a year, and he, and he gassed himself in his car. So you see, this insanity doesn't leave us. It doesn't leave us. I mean, this emotional deal... It just goes on and on and on and on. And all we're doing, all we're doing is taking care of ourselves as we go. And if we don't stay with this way of life, something happens. We go mad or we die or we end up in an insane asylum, which so many of us know who they are and where they are and what they have. Nobody can scare us. Nobody can scare us. I remember a guy, a friend of mine, he got up in the morning and he wanted to get a uh, drink over at the liquor store. And there wasn't a liquor store close to him, and he was dying for a drink, and the thing was opening at 9 o'clock in the morning. And at 8.30, he couldn't wait any longer. He threw a brick through the window and grabbed a bottle and run. 
And that's how bad it, bad it is with most of us at that time. The urge is so terribly great he couldn't resist breaking that window and grabbing a jug in one. That's insanity. And that's what we're all affected by, the insanity of alcoholism. Now, I came to, alcohol, uh, to Los Angeles in 19... Jeez, I'm looking at my watch, you see. This business of saying, you stop at so-and-so, just burns the ass off me. <laughs> well, he gave me plenty of time. I'll never forget, I used to talk out at Beverly Hills regularly every January, see. So one January, I go out there, and they have a couple speakers ahead of me, and at 10 minutes to 10 is their closing time. They called on me. I'm the guest speaker. So I got up and I says, how are you tonight? I'm sober and happy. I sat down. The guy told me when I got up that they were going to give away a lot of cakes. So that helped things too. So the next year I go back and they start the same deal. And I get up at ten, quarter to ten to talk, to talk and he says, make it short. We're going to give some cakes tonight. You know what I said to him. I turn to the audience and I says, he tells me that he's going to give away cakes tonight. But I want to tell you that I'm going to start talking now and I'm going to talk until 10.35. And if anybody wants to leave, leave right now. And nobody left. <laughs> they never invited me to talk there again. <laughs> well, anyway, <laughs> I just had a bad experience in one of the towns up the coast a week ago, and this guy walked up and put the thing on the on his head and said, "This is a one-hour meeting," and I said, "You go to hell." So I talked an extra half hour just just to be mean. Well, I. I Anybody can see, with 40 years sobriety, that I must have come in pretty young, maybe 10 or 15 years old. <laughs> but the truth of the matter is, if you've been sober six months, you're just as sober as I am, most likely. Maybe not as solid, but you're just as sober as I am. So this length of sobriety really doesn't mean a damn thing. I mean, it's a day-to-day -day deal. I maybe won't have as much trouble. I know what to do in case things get really out of hand, but at the same time, Get on the phone, baby. That's what I do, and I still will do it as long as I live. I came to Los Angeles in 1934. I was a slide trombone player, and I played all the brass instruments, but I ended up on slide, and I graduated from the university in music. I had a fine background, and I was able to do everything in my life that I wanted to, except I couldn't quit drinking. I came to Los Angeles. Uh, I, my home's in Idaho. I'm from North Idaho. I went to the University of Idaho. And I'd, I was ended up in Chicago, and I played there for many years in Chicago, and on the way... Out here, why, uh, I had a, a, a wife who was very intolerant and uh, two kids. She was so intolerant, she'd get upset if I didn't come home in three or four days. One of those silly things, you know. Guy has to do a little drinking, you know. You come home, my God, and here's the divorce papers all over the house. What are you going to do? Get you all emotionally upset? You're going to go get drunk again. I mean, that's the only doubt. Oh, it was terrible. So... <laughs> We moved on uh, Normandy Place, uh, right off of uh, Normandy Boulevard, right off of Beverly Boulevard. There, and uh, there was uh, another musician across the street. And my God, his name was Jack, and he was a terrific musician. Perfect pitch. God endows one out of every ten thousand with perfect pitch. He could write. He could arrange. He played all the reed instruments beautifully. A very brilliant man, and the worst drunk I ever met in my life. He was a psychopathic drunk. He would lay in bed and drink for a week at a time. And what the hell fun do you get laying in bed? Well, he says. I don't get pinched as often as you do. That's the difference. But we formed an AA club all our own. One alcoholic help of the other. If I was dying in the morning and I had to make a date at the studio, I'd call across the street and old Jack would get over there and do time with a jug. By the same token, I did the same thing for Jack. It was one alcoholic, and one alcoholic helping the other. Just like AA, where two or more are gathered together. You know one of those things? Just like alcoholics now, we had our own group. Didn't even know it. <laughs> so down around the corner was old Sam and old Sam had a beautiful liquor store right there in Beverly Boulevard old Sam Cohen never forget this guy the sweetest guy in the world so I figured I'd set myself up a nice charge account which we called a cuff in those days I was doing real well in the studio but I usually threw the check over to the old lady so I wouldn't spend it so I got him charged up to, I cuffed him up to about two jugs and then he wouldn't cuff me anymore and I says what's the matter and he says I, I, can't, I can't charge it so I said to Jack I says old Sam's a nice guy but I mean, uh, I got, got him owe him for two jugs, and he won't cuff me. And he says, "You don't work him right." And I said, "Why?" He says, "I owe him five hundred dollars." I says, "How the hell did you get him up to five hundred dollars?" He says, "By using my head, dummy." He said, "I owed him twenty, paid him ten. Owed him forty, paid him twenty. Owed him sixty, paid him thirty. 
He says, it took me quite a while, but I got him up to 500. <laughs> One day we're both dying for a drink, and Jack says, let's go see old Sam. And I said, Sam ain't going to give us any drink. And he said, watch me work him. And I said, Sam, give me a jug of so-and-so. And Sam says, Jack, can't do it. You owe me $500, and I have to have it right now. He says, I'm going bankrupt. My back's to the wall. He says, I'm in an awful shape. He says, go over here and borrow it. And he went on and on and on and on. Finally, he says, go down to the bank and borrow it. And Jack says, you mean on a personal note? And Sam says, yeah. Well, he says, I need a cosigner on that note, Sam. <laughs> and Sam says, I'll cosign. <laughs> yeah, I just I come over here to make a talk, and all I've been doing is talking since I got here, keeping that guy in line, you know. Well, anyway, I'm doing awfully well. I was uh, rated one of the best trombone players in the country. I played symphony, I played jazz, I played everything, and the studios were paying big money, and I got along pretty well for a long time until they caught up to me. They're very intolerant in the studios. You got a hundred men sitting there, and you get up there to play a solo and splatter all over the joint, they don't like it. <laughs> you just don't work there no more, that's all. So, uh, then in those days, the alcoholic had it pretty rough. There was no way to turn. All we were were a bunch of drunken bums. We weren't worth the powder to blow us. And the alcoholics went through a regular cycle. First they'd take the, they, first they'd take the cure, Keeley cure or whatever it happens to be, put out 150 bucks. Then they're out of that for two or three weeks and they're drunk again. And then eventually they'd go and take the psychiatric cure or the psychological cure and they'd go to them and, for treatment. And they'd go to them for a while and then nothing happens there and then they get drunk again. And then they'd end up with some religion, figuring they're moral vipers or sinners, or which we aren't. It's not a sin to drink, it's a sin to be a glutton. So a lot of them, you know, they get as nuts on the religion as they were in the booze, they'd have been better off to stay drunk. <laughs> they're out on the street corner thumping the bum with a drum, drum, drum. So uh, this is the cycle that they were going through at that time. So a very dear friend of mine that I worked with with Whiteman at one time, Paul, he was the worst drunk than I was. They're always worse drunk than I was, I thought. No, Paul. Now, in the meantime, my wife and I had lots of very good friends in Hollywood, kids that used to play in my band in college, you know. And uh, they were all, all for me in every way, shape, or form, and they were getting a little tired of this, so they finally talked me into going taking a cure, because Andy, old Andy Seacrest, who's dead now, I can use his name, he had taken a cure, and he was sober six months. <laughs> six months. So I... Of course, he was the worst drunk than me. So I called these dodos up. It was the Halco Cure out in Culver City. And they were there and nothing flat. And I had a big picture coming up. And it was meant a lot of money. And I had to get sober. I had to get straight and run. I just couldn't sober up. So I went out there and I'm like a rag. And I'm shaking. And they, the doctor gave me the once over, you know, the heart and the blood. Now we're getting somewhere. Now what would happen to you if I cut off your right ear? And John says, I wouldn't be able to see. He says, what? Why wouldn't you be able to see? He says, my hat would fall down over my eyes. <laughs> Well, I get drunk again, of course. We had to move up to Tahunga. My one daughter had asthma or something similar, which is 2,000 altitude. And uh, it was the lonesomest place in the world way back in 34, 35, 36 along in there. I'm still married to the intolerant wife. So I met a priest up there by the name of Dennis Falvey. I was born and raised a Catholic, hadn't been to church for 21 years, and they say, you're a fallen away Catholic. That's the funniest thing I ever heard, falling away. Hell, I was just staying away, that's all. <laughs> this old priest and I, we hit it off real good, you know. And he was a good salesman. I, I helped him get a choir together, and we got a little organ, and we were really rolling, you know. But I wouldn't show up every Sunday. I'd be on a drunk. End up behind in his back door and say, Father, loan me five, will you? And he'd all say, Here you are, my boy, but don't spend it all in one place. Not once did he say, don't, Why don't you quit drinking? I said, Now, there is a guy, without a doubt, who was a drunk and he quit. I wonder how he did it, you know? And he was, a, he was a real, real, one of the nicest people I ever met in my life. Never once did he say, why don't you quit drinking? And I says, now he must have been a drunk. He didn't say, why don't you quit drinking? He just gave me the five and no argument. It was beautiful. But one Christmas, I got out of dandy. I had been sober a, a week. Well, maybe it was five weeks. I saved my dough, bought a new car, everything is fine. Well, Christmas Eve, I smashed the car up. I had been playing, went to a big party and... Uh, Gene, 
Well, anyway, I won't go into it. It'll take too long because the guy's watching me, see. So, uh, anyway, I got thrown in the can. Don't ever get thrown in the can on, on Christmas Eve. It's miserable. In the morning, here they are with that big drum, drum outside of my, my cell beating on that drum, and I'm screaming, my God, I had called my lawyer, and he didn't get there till that night. My head's going 8,000 miles an hour, and here's these people screaming at me. The, the Salvation Army really put you, put you over the, the coals on Christmas morning, believe me, and you're in the can. So I called my lawyer, who was an ex-musician I used to work with, and he got there at 9.30 Christmas night. I says, where the hell have you been? He says, I was drunk myself. I had to sober up the clock. <laughs> Get you out. <laughs> hey, Joe. So the next morning. So you see, there's my Indian friend. I'm, a, I'm just a third Indian. He's half. Were you full? Yeah, full, full. That's worse. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, but I come from the Mohawk tribe. We ate up people like him. My tribe. But... <laughs> After all of the business with the wife and the terrible things that happened, why I went down to the old father and I says, I guess I better take the pledge. You know, in the Catholic Church, they take a pledge. And they stay sober, some of those half-wits. They really stay sober. And he says, uh, you can take the pledge if you want to, but it won't do you any good. And I says, what do you mean it won't do me any good? And he says, you're one of those guys, Al. I can't explain it, but you're one of those guys, and nothing's ever going to keep you sober. I said, don't you know anybody like me that ever got sober? And he says, yes, one guy. Back in South Dakota, I had a little, little uh, church in a little town there. And the town drunk, he said one morning he got up and he never took another drink and he was absolutely a different person. He had a different personality. Absolutely, I couldn't, he says, I can't explain it. I says, well, we call that, and now we call that a sudden spiritual awakening, which happens to maybe one out of every 10,000 of us. You know, that hot flash that Bill Wilson had? One, one out of 10,000 gets that hot flash, you know? <laughs> we, uh, we get the hot flash on a gradual deal. That's 99% uh, of us, you know? Anyway, I said, where is this guy? And what he says, I don't know where he is. And I says, well, what was the cause of him having this change in his personality? He says, I don't know that either. He says, all I can do is hope and pray I can find out the cause. And I says, what's going to happen to me? Oh, he says, that's simple. You're going to end up in a gutter, drunk and dead any time. I says, are you sincere about that? He says, sincere as I'm standing here if you keep on drinking. So I says, okay. And I started walking away. He says, just a minute, I want to tell you something. Al, it's not a sin to drink, but it's a sin to be a glutton. If anybody tells you anything different, they don't know what they're talking about. And I went my way. And boy, this is a great relief to me. Well, of course, in the meantime, this wife, this intolerant one, did me the great favor of divorcing me. And I ended back in Hollywood, and things are really upside down. And I'm having one hell of a time. And things got from bad to worse and bad to worse. And I went down the tubes in real wonderful shape, and I ended up down at Venice and Arlington in a two-dollar-a-week room above a grocery store. And this was my skid row, and this is where I ended up. And things are bad, and things are awfully, awfully bad. I'm not very happy. And all my friends deserted me. See me coming down the street, they walk across the street to avoid me. I'm walking up alleys. I get a date once in a while. The collection agency grabs my check before I can get to it. I have an old beat-up car, and this is all I had, and I was getting $15 a week unemployment. It was real, real rough. I met one gal who's turned out to be my best friend. And now we've been married 39 years, and she's still my best friend. But she was the only person that I found that I could sit down and talk to and really unload on. Her name is Cecilia. She's been wonderful. So things were... Things were awfully bad, and I kept getting pinched. And every time I started drinking, I was a periodical. I would stay some sober sometimes a whole week at a time, you know. <laughs> Standard equipment. Sober, getting drunk, drunk, getting sober, sober, getting drunk, or standard equipment. That's the way with me. It was pretty, pretty bad. It was pretty awful. And then I got into a real bad jam. And things looked bad. They looked pretty bad. And I... Make a long story short, I got 90 days. Now I'm driving without a license. I'm driving without in, uh, insurance. I'm driving without everything. I didn't get pinched for hitting anything. I used to go, always go up side streets as slow as I possibly can to avoid the tops. But because I went slow, they figured I was casing some joint to burglarize it, you see. And they'd grab me anyway. You can't win, see. So uh, I got out, I think, in 40, 45 days. And uh, 
I said, if I ever take another drink, I'll kill myself. You and I will never know how many alcoholics commit suicide. You'll never know. And I was about to do it. I stayed sober a full month. And something happened. Something happened. We alcoholics have the greatest ability of anybody in the world. Anybody in the world to make mountains out of molehills. One little thing comes up and we just exaggerate it and we keep building on it and building on it and building on it. We jump on a horse and ride in all directions, you know. <laughs> We're like that squirrel in the cage. It just goes around and around and around and around. And eventually we get drunk. Eventually we have to have that medicine. Now what is this disease of alcoholism? They say it's a physical allergy, which sounds very, very sensible to me. It doesn't mean that we all have the same types of allergy. You know, the guy who breaks out when he eats strawberries, you know. My oldest daughter, she had an allergy caused by the albumin in, the leg, in, 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 in an egg. And when she ate cake, for instance, that contained the white of an egg, she would go into spasms. So she was allergic to that. So we finally found out that that was the thing to avoid. And on and on and on. But our allergy is thus. When we take a drink, it causes a compulsion within us to con drink continue to drink in spite of ourselves. The compulsion is more powerful than willpower. And what the hell is willpower? Willpower is just another function of the mind. It's another function of the body. It's another muscle in the mind. And that muscle gets tired. That willpower gets tired like any other function of the body. After all, we're just human. And you know, to stay sober one second every minute and then one minute every hour and one hour every day and on and on and on, that willpower is going to get tired and we're going to get drunk again. I remember I met a guy in AA, he'd been sober seven years, and I says, how'd you do it? He says, my wife locked me in the bedroom every night at seven o'clock. And that was the only way he stayed sober. And that was the way with us, because your willpower will carry you just so far. And they didn't think that alcoholism was a disease in those days like we know what it is now. So we're having the physical. Now on the other side, what caused us to get ourselves into this big tizzy where we had to have that drink. I say it's emotional instability to the nth degree. We always got drunk when we went to a wedding, didn't we? We always got drunk when we went to a party. We always got drunk when things went bad and we lost a job, or we went for a job and didn't get it. We always got drunk when we got in a big argument with the old lady, or we always got drunk when things were happy. It doesn't make any difference whether the emotionalism on the high side or the low side. We got drunk. So it is the emotions, my emotions, that caused me to get drunk all the time. And I deteriorated emotionally till I was to the point where I was like that child. The child lays on the floor and kicks his feet and cries when it's upset emotionally. I didn't kick my feet and cry. I just went over and got drunk. So what causes us to get into these emotional tizzies? It says in the book in so many places, we have defects of character that is very much in a parallel with all alcoholics. And these defects of character... I found in my fourth step, the worst defect of character that I have is self-pity or frustration, which in most instances always got me drunk. The second worst defect of character that I have is resentments. The third worst defect of character that I have is intolerance. And the fourth worst e defect of character that I have is selfishness. And there are many, many more, but these are the most outstanding defects of character, and these are the things that cause me to get myself into a great big emotional tizzy. Now I realize that I have become honest with myself, at least to a big degree. When I get myself into a big emotional tizzy, all I have to do is look at my inventory, and I can put my finger on the cause immediately. And you know, when you find out the cause, that's 90% of the job. Then you can go ahead and do the rest of the work on it. And it works for me. And I always get a hold of another alcoholic. And I talk to him. Maybe not tell him what's bothering me at all. We are emotional people. Who the hell wants to be a vegetable anyway, you know? And we will always have those highs and the lows in our life, no matter whether we drink or we don't drink. I have them. I will until I die. But they're good. They're good. They keep us, it makes life exciting, you know? <laughs> it makes life exciting. So these are the things I found on that side of the picture. So I have a, a physical... Intolerance to alcohol and emotional, my emotional instability was the cause of my taking that first drink and I couldn't stop it. So we're doing something about it, this disease. Now, whether this works for you, it's worked for me for those 40, 40 years and seven months. And all I have to do is be honest with me, be honest with Marino and everything works out fine. And as the old saying goes, do what you're supposed to do and you're supposed to do it. And it can't be anything else but right. Even when we don't think it's right, it's still right. Do what we're supposed to do and we're supposed to do it. 
Well, I got on my big drunk, of course. The last one is always the worst one. And I, uh, I, uh, didn't take, didn't eat anything. I wasn't an eating drunk. I mean, those guys that eat a big meal after getting all that good booze on them and kill the effects of that booze, that's crazy. You know, you lose all that good money. So I stayed drunk for eight weeks in this little room. Celia couldn't do anything with me. Nobody could do anything with me. And I got a call from old Jack while I was on this whizzer. And old Jack says, uh, March 1st of 1941. He says, did you see the Saturday Evening Post this week? And I said, no. Why? I couldn't have read it anyway. He says, there's an article in there about a group of people in New York called Alcoholics Anonymous. They help one another. And he says, they've stolen our idea. I says, how? Well, he says, it shows a guy lying in bed, and somebody's brought, a, brought him some medicine, most likely. And when that guy in bed is well, and the other fellow's on his can, he goes and helps him. But he says, there's a hundred of them. It's just like a union. I says, wonderful. 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 I says, read me some more of it. He says, well, I can't read the small print right now. I'm pretty drunk, and my eyes won't focus. So I kept right on drinking, and I got a call from old Jack maybe two or three weeks later, and he says, I found this thing called Alcoholics Anonymous. I says, no. He says, yeah. He says, they stay sober. I says, no kidding. And he says, yeah. He says, I've been sober a week. I says, my God, the worst, psych the worst psychopathic drunk in the world, if you're sober a week, I'm a cinch for a lifetime. How did you find it? Well, he says, I was down at the liquor store cuffing for a jug, and one of the local drunks is paying part of his bill. And I got him outside, and I says, what are you paying your bill for, dummy? You're going to ruin it for the rest of us around here in this neighborhood. <laughs> So the guy told him about AA, and he says, I went to a meeting, and he says, I haven't had a drink for a, month, a week. And I says, my God, Jack, if you can stay sober a week, I'm a cinch. I'm absolutely, send him over. Oh, he says, no, it isn't that easy. You have to call him. Here's his number, and here's his name. His name was Fowler. I'll remember that. So I called him, and he says, I'll be over tomorrow afternoon. I says, don't come in the afternoon. He says, why? And I says, well, I'll be passed out. <laughs> well, he says, what do you mean? I says, if I'm not passed out by noon, I have the DTs. So I said, you better come in the morning. He says, still giving orders. I said, well, certainly, that's just common sense. <laughs> well, anyway, after a lot of hassling around, I got sober enough for him to come over. And he came over on a Wednesday, and he talked, and he talked, and he talked, and he just bored the hell out of me. <laughs> and I thought, now, this is another damn cult, just as sure as hell. He kept bringing up God all the time, you know. And I says, uh-oh, uh-oh, we got all those wacky-doodle religions in Southern California, and this is just another one, you know. They hadn't proved anything yet in AA. So I... <laughs> I said, uh, he says, I'll, I'll, I'll pick you up Friday. And I said, just a minute. I haven't decided to join this deal yet. I have to, I'm not going to lend my name to a bunch of wacky doodles. You know. Just, uh, just hold your horses here a minute, you know. I said, you just don't know who I am. I said, maybe I'm the most prominent musician in the world right today. The best trombone player that walked this earth. And here you want me just to walk into that meeting. I said, no, no, not to lend my name. So he got mad and he wrote out the address and he says, I'll see you there Friday night. I said, well, maybe. So I got sober enough to get down there, and I called my girlfriend, Cecilia, and I said, Cecilia, will you go down with me? She says, sure. So we went down, we went to the door, and the guy says, do you want to stay sober on an all-time basis? And I says, you betcha. He says, step inside. And I said, just a minute, I want to talk to my, uh, my sponsor. His name is Fowler. Oh, he said, didn't you hear about Fowler? And I said, no. He says, he got drunk last night. <laughs> I says, hooray, didn't like the bastard anyway. <laughs> so we sat down in the front row. And a guy up there is really, really laying it out. He is preaching a sermon. He is he's quoting from the Bible. He's looking down his nose at us. I says, oh, my God, another Main Street mission. What is this business? Turn to follow out. Charlie Swearinger was his name, sitting next to us. And, of course, as I said before, they're all dead, but just four of us out of that bunch. And I says, I'm going home. I can't see whether this is going to help me in, all, in any way, shape, or form. I said, all you need is sawdust on the floor, and you've got a Main Street mission. He says, are you an alcoholic? And I said, yeah. He says, give yourself a break. Stick around for the rest of this meeting and come back to at least eight meetings before you make a decision of whether you think this is for you or not. Then if you don't like it, go your way. We won't bother you. I says, I'll just prove it to you. So I stayed. Thank God. I met some wonderful guys. And among them was a guy by the name of Pete Cunningham who lived close to me. And Pete knew all about AA. He had studied the book, you know, and he just took me over just beautifully. We used to make calls together and get thrown out of the nicest homes, and we just went right to town. Pete was working down at the city hall. I said to Cheat one day, I says, how long have these guys been sober? Well, he says, Mort, the founder, has been sober a year. Frank's been sober six months. The rest of us have been sober by the week. And I says, what's keeping us sober? He says, I don't know. But he says, we're like a bunch of drowning men. We're just hanging on to each other to keep from going down a third time. And we're going to make it. And I says, yeah, I guess we will. And we made it. 
So I got sober, and I thought, well, I'll get back in the studios and make that fat dough again. Everything's going to be fine, you know. It didn't happen that way at all. I made less money that first year in AA than I ever had in my life as a, as a musician. You see, God takes care of us. God takes care of us. Now that I look at back at this, this is all God's will. This great intelligence or this power greater than myself, to me, God is the great spirit, and it works very good for me. He saw to it that I didn't get all this dough and get going again like I wanted to, because the old head would have come out, the ego would have blown up, and I'd have been drunk again. And I look back at my whole life and all of these things that happened to me that I thought were so bad. Somebody was trying to tell me something, but I was too damn stupid to listen. And to me, it was all this, the great spirit, the great spirit. So I got up after about three months and I says, I used to make more money when I was drinking. One of the mean old bastards says, go back to drinking. <laughs> and I says, I don't want to. He says, okay, sit down and shut up. <laughs> so uh, about six months, I went to the leader of the group. His name was Frank Randall. And I said, do you know anybody in the music business? He said, no, why? And I said, I need a job real bad, and I thought you might have an angle. He said, my boy, this is not an employment agency. This is a place to stay sober. What's your number one problem? And I says, alcohol is my number one problem. And he says, okay, take care of your number one problem, and everything else will take care of itself when it's supposed to. He says, you might not get a job for five years the way you've kicked these people around, but you'll eat and you'll have a roof over your head. And from now on, worry about one thing, your number one problem, and you'll get everything in this world that you deserve and most likely a lot more. And I have gotten a lot more. But I don't think there's been a day gone by that I don't think of that. I've got one problem, and that's alcohol. And if I take care of that one problem, everything else will take care of itself when it's supposed to. And it does, and it has. And that's the way it's supposed to be. Now, I had a little friend by the name of Fidgey, piano player. He was on CBS radio days. Played so beautiful you wouldn't believe. Little guy, five foot six. He had a nice family. He had a wife, two kids, two cars, nice home in Santa Monica. Going to town, and everybody loved Little Fidge because he played so wonderful for a little guy. And he started drinking, and my God, in no time at all, he's a full-blown alcoholic. Of course, he lost his $500 a week job. He lost his family. He ends up with nothing but a tuxedo, a couple of stiff shirts, and a tie, and he's playing these piano bars around town. He got a job way out in the south side of Los Angeles at a piano bar. He goes out there and cases the whole area and cases the place, and he found out that he, <clears throat> he couldn't get back to town at 2 o'clock in the morning, so he had to find a room. So he found a room, and he went back to the bar in case the neighborhood, and he found out that from the bar over to his room, he could take a shortcut through a little cemetery. So every morning at 2 o'clock, he's drunk as a goat usually, and he starts through this little cemetery, and by God, he gets home in 10 minutes and never gets pinched. But this particular morning, he's very drunk, and it's cold, and it's raining, and he starts through this little cemetery, and the, the path is very winding. He got off the path, and by God, he fell in the hole. It was dug for a funeral the next day. Here's a poor little bastard at the bottom of the hole. He can't get out. He's reaching up and pulling, and he's screaming like a Comanche all night long. About dawn, an old wino come wandering through this little cemetery, and he hears this bellard. Sounds like a Comanche. He wandered around, he sees our little piano player down at the bottom of the hole. Spread eagle out, giving up. And the wino says, what's the matter down there? He says, get me out of here, I'm freezing to death. Get me out of here, I'm freezing to death. And he looked at him a minute, and he says, well, no wonder you're freezing to death. You've kicked all your dirt off. That's actually a person. He's dead now. It got him. He finally got him. So we try to practice these steps to the best of our ability. We definitely have a change in our personality, our attitudes, and our sense of values, and we start getting honest. Then we get down to that 12th step. It says, having had a spiritual awakening. So Bill Wilson was out to Los Angeles one time, and I said, what the hell's a spiritual awakening business? Does somebody tap me on the head with a magic wand? What is it? He says, it's a change in our personality, our attitudes, and our sense of values. That's the true spiritual awakening. And he says, look at the book, 569, in the big book, in the bottom back of the big book. We don't have one here. So, well, if we got it, I'll just look at it. I, I wrote the last, chat, uh, the last paragraph in this thing, so I'm pretty proud of it. Because Bill was screwed up, and I wrote it for him. <laughs> no, he, he had it in the last paragraph. He says, uh, no one need to have trouble with the spiritual side of the program. And I jumped on him. I says, what side's the spiritual side? He says, it's all spiritual. I said, what the hell did you write it for? He says, you write it. So I rewrote it. Spirituality, the program. You see, smart old Marino. 
So now it's in the big, it's all in these books. That was the first edition. He says here, the spiritual awakening, the spiritual, the spiritual experience, he says, the term spiritual experience and spiritual awakening are used many times in this book, which upon careful reading shows that the personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism, alcoholism has manifested itself among us. In other words, you and I, if we try to follow this program to the best of our ability, we will have what they call the spiritual awakening. It's a change in our attitudes and our personality. That's the true spiritual awakening, from the alcohol to non-alcohol. That's exactly what it is. And he says down here, most of our experiences are what the psychologist William James calls the educational variety because they develop slowly over a period of time. Quite often, friends of the newcomer are aware of the difference long before he is himself. He finally realizes that he has undergone a profound alteration in his reactions to life that such a change could hardly have been brought about by himself alone. What often takes place in a few months could seldom have been accomplished by years of self-discipline. It's right in the book. I didn't know it till I've been sober for many, many years. I thought those were all stories back there, and they usually stink anyway, you know. Ha, ha, ha! Cook up a story and send it back. They'll put it in a book. Well, anyway, that was a great relief to me, you see, because they'd, nobody tapped me with a magic wand, and I had one of those hot flashes. But we all have a spiritual awakening in a gradual way. It's a definite change if we try to practice these steps to the best of our ability. And as he says down here, probably no human power could help us that God could and would have sought. But that takes action on our part. Action is the magic word. God helps those who help themselves. This is true in AA is everything. You see, we're getting down to basics again. AA is just good old-fashioned common sense is what it is. And all we have to do is revert ourselves to these 12 simple steps and the common sense comes out and we stay sober. It's a spiritual experience. This boy was four years old and he became completely blind. His family took him everywhere where they heard about great eye doctors or great eye surgeons. And no one was able to diagnose why he couldn't see. He grew up to be a fine-looking young man. He's about 24 years old. He graduated from college. He's got the world by the tail, but he's blind. And then a young doctor moved into their town, eye surgeon and eye specialist, and he performed some remarkable operations on friends of theirs, and they were able to come back in their sight. So he went to see him, and the doctor says, from what you tell me, it'll take me some time to diagnose why you can't see. So he went back for many, many visits to the doctor, and the doctor finally says, I think I have the proper diagnosis, but it'll mean an operation. And the boy says, let's go. So they went to the hospital, and he operated on the boy, and he laid up in his hospital bed with bandages over his eyes for exactly 23 days. And then the doctor called the family, and he says, tomorrow we'll find out whether this operation was a success or not. And here's the whole family standing around the bed. The doctor slowly took these bandages off the boy's eyes. When he got them completely off his eyes, the boy opened his eyes, and my God, he could see light. And then he could recognize his family. And he grabbed the doctor by the hand. He says, Doctor, I don't know how to thank you. I just don't know how to thank you. The doctor said, Don't thank me. All I did was put in the stitches, and God took care of the rest. All we do in Alcoholics Anonymous, put in the stitches, and God takes care of the rest. God bless you all, and I hope to see you in a year.